Uh, welcome back to Left Anchor. I'm Ryan Cooper. And I'm Alexi the Greek. Uh, yeah, so it's been really interesting seeing the different perspectives on the unfolding Russia drama with Trump and his cronies uh, getting into deeper and deeper water, it seems, while lots of people are unsure what to make of it. So I was just uh, reading some of your good stuff and wanted to hear a few more of your thoughts on, um, I don't know, how to, how to kind of make the right judgment about how to appraise this stuff. So, uh, yeah, what are, you, what are you thinking? This was kind of a funny story because... Uh, I got in a bit of hot water as I wrote an article that was that was basically making the case that leftists are being over skeptical about the Russia uh, story. And the reason I wrote that is because basically, you know, in the take business, you have to, you know, when things happen, sometimes your name comes up and you got to have a take on that and so i thought well what else is there oh i think this is probably true but yeah um and you did you have a sense that you might get in hot water over that or yes i did (laughs) uh uh but so yeah then um so broad you know broadly speaking we're talking about the uh perception maybe reality that the president is somehow compromised by vladimir putin right and um the 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 idea that putin sort of appears to be setting up a like reactionary fascist international sort of behind you know in back channels and so forth you know he's got He's got his people in the Czech Republic, in Hungary. He's pretty close with China now in the Philippines and um, various other countries. And I made the analogy that that, that that's pretty much exactly what's happening to the United States. You know, because what Putin does is he boosts up right-wing corrupt political parties with money and... um, you know, there's there's huge tide of, you know, they talk about political dark money. Well, there's also just like cross-border dark capital flows that really aren't right. tra- traced in any systematic way. And so that seems to have happened to the NRA, where they yeah. were getting a lot of money from somewhere. And they spent way more money in 2016 than they uh, usually do. Yep. But there is a lot of pushback, you know... Um, Corey Robin wrote a piece. Seth Ackerman wrote a piece in Jacobin, um, basically comparing it to McCarthyism. You know, to think that like this this type of situation is very dangerous for the left, and you really can't uh, you you can't say anything about it without boosting up the right, except for just like trivial election security, cybersecurity matters. You know, we should have clean elections. Right. Period. End of discussion. Yeah, that's strange. Can we, can we break down what the analogy is there with like who's McCarthy and what, what? Can you talk a bit more about the McCarthyism analogy? Well, um, you know, it's 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 funny because I don't. Uh, Are, it doesn't line up. Yeah, right? that's, that's so. The thing. Like you know, in McCarthy times, you had a right wing alcoholic. Uh, cynical kind of um demagogue you know who who accused uh you know said famously it got a big list with hundreds of people in the state department they're all communists never actually produced a list but you know successfully whipped up a kind of nationalist frenzy and a paranoia about communism right and so you know the 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 parallel, of course, importantly, Russia was a left wing, you know, ostensibly left wing, but uh, certainly identified as such communist dictatorship. And um, also important to realize that they really did have a lot of uh, 
espionage, penetration of the government. You know, there were spies all over the place. Right. Um, yep. uh, Harry Dexter White, who literally built the Bretton Woods like trade system of the post-war age, was a um, giving you know information to the communists. Um, kind of ironically, you know, he didn't set it up to their advantage at all. <laughs> he set it up for the U.S. advantage. And um, also, like, later scholarship has has kind of suggested that all that spying probably eased tension somewhat because the Soviets had a pretty good idea about American intentions, and so they weren't uh, freaking out. Um, at any rate, the, 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 so there was this, like, frenzy... Uh, you know, a paroxysm of red purging and, um, you know, people were driven out of their jobs. There was a, just like the, the left was devastated um, politically. Right. And the Democrats kind of turned more or less permanently towards the right on communism. Whereas before they had, had been a little bit more open to um, you know, especially in FDR's time, of course, when we were actually allied with the Soviets, right. like diplomatic approaches. Now it was just like Cold War. Mm -hmm. That's why. And so the situation. Go, oh, go no, ahead. I was just saying that's why it's such an interesting parallel, because instead of the people suffering at the hands of the frenzy being kind of the people of the country here, the, the, the target supposedly right of the uh, whipping up of the fervor is kind of a reactionary president and his cronies. So it's a strange parallel in that way, right? Right. So the, the difference now is that Russia is governed by a, a right-wing authoritarian. Right. And the United States is also governed by a right-wing authoritarian, not like Eisenhower. In fact, you know, that was the demise of McCarthy pretty much when he claimed that, I believe he claimed that Eisenhower, maybe George Marshall was a communist. <laughs> And people were like, it, Republicans had tolerated him just making these wild accusations because it was hurting the Democrats. Yeah. But at that point, they were like, uh, this guy's a liability. He needs to go. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, you can always imagine a situation in which the, you know, the right, like, there's a nationalist frenzy and, you know, it, it ends up redounding to the to the discredit of the left, you know, and it gets suppressed mm. like that sort of happened in the, in the 1920s as well. Right. But in this case, it, it's just like the tables are turned, as you say, you know, and I think the biggest difference I think to me is that if you're going to have a nationalist frenzy like that, the right has to be sort of the driving force. Yeah. And if the right-wing president is the main culprit, you're just never going to have that. Right. In in it, it seems to me that yeah. And yeah. Um, I guess to be fair to, to Corey it, Robbins' argument, the the fear politically or in terms of electoral politics is this um, this notion that uh, Democratic Socialist candidates or, or lefty candidates. Um, in primaries, I suppose, with, with uh, Democrats, uh, if they win in, in the general election, whether it be, I guess in the midterms um, or, or, you know, in, in uh, years to follow, they could be um, losing to Republicans because the, those socialists are seen as kind of um, propped up by the Russians because there's some evidence that... Uh, Russia wants them to win or some some strange theory about that. Um. Yeah, so there's some preliminary evidence that during the general election, Russians sort of ham-fistedly attempted to sow dissent among Democrats by boosting up Bernie and Jill Stein. Um, you know, it's basically just to sort of divide the, the enemy. Right. Um, but you know, it's it's important to realize that their their goal pretty obviously was to get Trump elected. Yes. You know, and so if you have a lefty general election candidate, they're going to get the same kind of dirty tricks that 
Hillary Clinton got. Right. They're not going to be boosted up by Putin. You know, it's, a, it's purely instrumental in the context of, yeah. you know, a centrist, yeah. ferociously anti-Russia candidate, Hillary Clinton, you sh- we should, we should uh, <laughs> emphasize, yes. um, running against Trump, who was the, you know, the, the, the sort of Victor Orb- Orban cutout, you know, for, for the United States. Right. But I guess Corey Robin and others are worried that we won't have, uh, you know, we being leftists, leftists won't end up winning as much if um, liberals and the left generally are afraid somehow that um, anyone but the centrist Democrats are kind of pawns of Putin or something. But I guess, as you say, that could just be... Um, counter-argued so that people don't think that i suppose right um yeah i mean you know you you can never predict exactly what you know what where people might go completely out of their out of their gourds and just like go into a frenzy of right anti-leftism but i think that um you know, it's interesting to note that when the when the Russia story first got started, there were all these people who were really were trying to whip up a kind of deranged nationalist frenzy. People like Eric Garland, um, Louise Mensch, mm-hmm. um, yeah. uh, what's her um, Max Boot, sort of to some degree, right. Molly McHugh, and and those people have sort of been quietly exiled from polite discussion on liberals because they're making so many loony predictions, yes. you know, like Mensch at one point said that like Trump is going to be like, uh, arrested and <laughs> executed <laughs> by the Supreme court, uh, yeah. like Sergeant at arms or something <laughs> like, like just absolute <laughs> nutcase right. sort of, um, views and um so you know there's always a danger of that in a country like this but i guess my big disagreement with these these folks comes down to you know this idea that the only possible response you can have to the president more or less in in like in in literal terms being uh committing treason right you know, working with a foreign, a hostile foreign power to uh, win the election is to say uh, that we need election security. And that's that's right. It. Right. And just a quick side side it, note that it I, I guess this is somewhat contested, but uh, it's probably unlikely that no matter what he did, he could be actually. um you know, tried for treason, which like in the constitution was very narrowly defined. Uh, right, we'd yes. have to be actively at war with Russia, uh, perhaps. Although there, there are some arguments that because of Syria, uh, there are ways in which you could construe it such that, and uh, Russia is actually, um, would fit into that category and, and he could be accused of treason. But in any case, the more like the yeah. general connotation of treason, right? Like, uh, yes, yes, yes. I'm, I'm talking about like, you know, I've been reading about the French Revolution a bit, you know, and so like those emigre French nobles who would try to work with like the Austrian monarchy right. to like lead an army back in to right. take over control of the country. Right. Um, and, and, and that's, I should say, aside from the point of whether we should like constantly accuse Trump of treason, I don't think that's a good idea. Right. You know, that does kind of play into hysterical narratives, but like. Yeah. You know, th- this is this is something that seems just like more or less by definition has to be a a important topic of discussion. And, um, you know, you got to have some sort of wrap on it. As I was saying previously that, you know, this this Putin is a sinister guy. He, you know, murders journalists and his political opponents and is like basically you know one of the world fountains of fascism and also corruption and plutocracy and i think you know that's a pretty compelling narrative it's certainly better than anything that the uh eric garland's have absolutely yeah so i think an important point you're making there is not only should because one of the questions is 
yes, the centrist liberals, uh, some of whom are, are, are crazy, like the Garlands of the world, but a lot of whom just uh, eat up whatever um, small evidence comes out so that they can make a conspiracy theory or call uh, Trump a traitor. And um, many of many of whom also just like to use it as an excuse for Hillary Clinton's electoral loss. Um, the, the left has a lot of good reasons to uh, to critique, I think, some of those people and some of those arguments. And I understand, right, the desire to wake up a lot of Clinton supporters and a lot of centrist liberals or neoliberals from the delusion that there is no legitimate reason why she lost, right? Like that, I can understand that that yeah. sentiment that I onboard 100%. Um, the problem is when the antipathy for those people and those arguments gets so great that you lose all sense of what else might be going on and what other reasons might be important for uh, basically doing the job of a political party, which is to or a political um, ideology, which is to, to interpret facts in a way that helps people make sense of them politically. Right. And and the left, like I think you're suggesting, is missing a big opportunity because uh, the one you laid out makes a hell of a lot more sense than the other uh, understandings or interpretations, right? Yeah, yeah. It's it's not just that Trump is a, you know, singularly terrible person who, you know, worked with this devious foreign guy to, you know, destroy America. It's that the whole Republican Party is so corrupt that they, you know, ba- like refuse to to act with even the slightest bit of um you know what you might call patriotism or just like respect for the constitutional structure of the United States as a you know a democratic state right and um you know it ha- it has to do it has to do with the corruption and sort of derangement of the Republican party international capitalism and uh you know just money in politics right and it also goes to you know like the somewhat more sort of mainstream credible anti-trump people like max boot who are you know argue for of course like the neocons want a really belligerent response to russia but that's you know that's completely ridiculous like you can't um yeah you know, we've tried sanctioning the crap out of them, and what they did was <laughs> they they sort of got a stooge in the presidency. You know, we have to clean up our own house is really the only yes. way that we're going to be able to stop this sort of thing that they're they're doing like permanently. Right. Um, you can't, you know, and you can't have a war with a nuclear superpower. It's just completely out of the question. Right. And so I think it's a, you know, it's a, if the, the properly considered left response is much more credible to the actual issue at hand. Yes. And I think one danger of just completely dismissing all this stuff is to just enable the max boots and like, well, look, the left doesn't even think this like clearly important thing even is a problem. And so what we need to do is like, restart the cold war and have a lot of you know high stakes confrontations like that's not gonna solve anything right you know no it's it's a blind spot uh in the same way that centrist liberals uh have so many blind spots when it comes to issues of class uh that this is something that for for reasons i think we've we've gone into a little bit um the overly concerned um posture that, hey, we'll forget about these class, important class issues. We'll forget about all the, you know, their children being um, imprisoned uh, toddlers that have to represent themselves in court and all these other terrible, terrible things will be overlooked uh, and overtaken by by this other narrative. Therefore, we should just try to not talk about it. it is, I think, as you say, uh, a problem when so many people probably as the evidence keeps rolling out for more and more corruption and collusion, uh, they're going to want to have a take to a narrative to make sense of it with. And if, if the left doesn't offer one, like you say, they're going to take what's available, you know, and that's, that's a big missed opportunity. Yeah. And, you know, some people have tried to 
confront, uh, comfort themselves with, you know, some polls saying that the broader population is not that interested in, in this. And I just think that's not going to play out, you know, right. you watch, uh, you know, you watch liberal media, MSNBC is talking about Russia stuff all the time. CNN's talking about it all the time. I mean, heck, I even, you know, occasionally I'll tune in to uh, Stephen Colbert, see what he's talking about. It's, it's right. almost every day yeah. some kind of uh, Russia Trump stuff. Yeah. So, you know, it, it's it's going to be a first-rank issue, I think, whether we like it or not. Right. And there has been, you know, you wrote a great piece on it, but there are a few others um, on the left who have also tried to take up a position that's not just pure skepticism, right? So there, there is at least a small, small yeah. contingent of people who are saying, hey, uh, we need to, to start talking about this. Yeah, and some people have worked out, you know, David Cleon had a pretty good piece in The Nation about, you know, diplomatic approaches um right mainly to to uh, stop antagonizing russia and eastern europe in a way that we're not really prepared to back up you know to say like we need to sort of like set things sort of put a lid on things we're not just going to keep expanding nato to the east forever and ever right. till it you know <laughs> like in you know encircles russia on all sides um but yeah, you know, I think that it's 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 a argument that's still being developed, but um I think it, you know, there's just kind of no way around it. Right. And it and it should also, you know, you should note that like this is only one, you know, if you're if you're going to run a political campaign, a national political campaign, yeah. obviously first yeah. first billing has to go to healthcare, yes. economy, um you know, all the panoply of policies that actually affect people's daily lives. That's true. Absolutely. Um, yep. This is a sort of a side thing, but I think you do have to have something. Right. Right. Do you think that um, this is part of a broader political divide when trying to understand Trump from the left? Um, and again, I keep coming back to Corey Robin, but it's an interesting um place to start because uh, as I understand what he's written he uh, wants to guard against which I think is a, a legitimate thing guard against the notion that that Trump is kind of sui generis just uh, you know out of context out of place and time just like he he came up from hell and and has uh, you know an originality of evil that we've never seen and he's a tyrant of a, of a special class unto himself or something um, and so instead, it seems like Corey Robbins seems to argue that, one, he's not actually that dangerous. Um, and this is part of his overall, I think, thesis about, um, about the reactionary mind and the ways in which uh, the power on the right really comes from um, the strength of the left. And because the right has succeeded so much, they don't have a lot of energy, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but he, he seems to say that the ways in which Trump is mostly dangerous are the ways in which Republicans are always dangerous and the ways in which uh, those institutions like the courts um, have been seen to be kind of bulwarks uh, against tyranny. Actually, no, it's the norms themselves that create a lot of the oppression and uh, the status quo is itself the, the biggest threat. So it's this really interesting um, story that, that um, you see on the left liberals saying God, we need the courts to step in. Thank God for uh, the historical um, safety we have in the Constitution and the norms. We need the norms. There's this norm erosion. Trump, Trump is he's the terrible one. And then Corey Robbins saying, actually, he's no different. And to the extent that he's similar, that's why he's bad. Right. Like it's, it's an interesting way to think about it. What, what's your view on, on how to kind of um, disentangle those those different arguments? Yeah, I I I been looking at uh Corey Robbins sort of Trump takes and I think I I agree with him that like he's always saying that Trump is a weak president and that the Republicans are at a sort of historical low tide in terms of democratic energy. Right. 
um, be like they clearly see themselves as being uh, kind of on the losing side of demographic trends and they have gotten all they want over the last 30 years for the most part and they they tried to do one more big thing which is like tear up Obamacare and like cut Medicaid to the bone so that rich people could have another big tax cut and it didn't work and this year they've sort of abandoned policy making altogether like they're not even trying to pass any sort of big big stuff anymore for the most part um you know they could always like gin something up at the last minute but uh so i agree with that and the way that they're trying to entrench themselves you know against this um you know rising majority of people that aren't conservative but i also think that characterizing that as not dangerous is wrong i think that you know trump very obviously he is the product of a broader sort of derangement of the republican party that's happened over the last generation you know he's not even the first celebrity idiot to be elected president right right. um (laughs) but i think that you know the situation of a reactionary minority perceiving that they are like on the outs of you know the sort of broader democratic structures um and that they don't they don't have the, the masses behind them i think that that is a kind of risky position because it can lead them to take these sort of extreme actions yes. to uh to cement their own power to undermine democracy and even to take you know who's that guy michael anton yep. who who wrote the the flight 93 election it's like to, you know considering considering the 2016 election is yes. like this is our last chance that's it if we don't if we don't win america is dead and, you know, that's the kind of stuff that you, you in history, you know, you tend to hear before, like, a military coup. Right, right. You know? Um, and, you know, I don't, I don't think anything like that is being plotted, but, it, you know, very powerful people, conservative people, who see, like, that the, the wind is blowing against them, and that democracy is not going to work out in their interests yeah. very well, probably over the next couple of decades, I think could be a pretty uh, tricky situation yeah. for mass democracy. And, and we're seeing that globally, right? This is not a, a thing that is just uh, unique to the United States and, and our politics. No. So I, I think there's a lot of red flags uh, that, and again, it's it's the danger of saying, well, this is a sign of weakness, and therefore, what could go wrong? <laughs> well, a, a lot of things could go wrong, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, you you as you know, Netanyahu has done in Israel, as uh, uh, Erdogan has done in Turkey. Yeah. You know, you you can you can have a democratic state which is just not uh, meaningfully democratic, right? You know, which is just a a sort of a husk with the managed managed democracy. I've heard it called. You know, where yeah. just like basically the left or even liberals have no chance of winning. Yeah, it's it's an unfortunate thing because it is such a ripe opportunity for the left. Um, when you have the look, the breakdown of liberalism and capitalism and the ways in which it fails to address the economic needs of so many people, um, it does give rise to this choice, right? It's socialism or barbarism. It's, it's the right or the left. Yeah. And, and it's a mistake to think that um, signs that the right is growing empowered are not dangerous when it does seem, if anything, clear that what people of almost all stripes are rejecting is the the status quo, the liberal order. 
And it, it, there does yeah. need to be, right, uh, a beating the other side in that battle for socialism or barbarism. Yeah. Yeah, and I think this, you know, um, to, to make a final point about uh, the, bro- the broader political context, um, you know, this, I think, is going to be the big danger is that, you know, someone in the left like Sanders or Warren wins the uh, 2020 nomination Mm -hmm. and then these angry like wealthy centrist liberals you know they run Mike Bloomberg as a spoiler right and he peels off enough votes in you know Virginia and uh, you know a couple of other states to throw the election to Trump again right right and you know it's because um well, it's like as as John John Kenneth Galbraith uh, famously said, like pe- people of privilege almost always prefer to risk total destruction rather than surrender the least part of their privileges. Absolutely. Um, and if it's like, you know, if I can't have everything, <laughs> then I'm just gonna go for broke. Right. Right. Be- because for them, uh, the greater risk is to have people that would threaten their actual. Uh, wealth and power and the the risk on the other side doesn't really redound to them as much no it's not not in the same meaningful sense or even if it does sometimes they won't believe it you know it's like trump might put you in jail you know it's like some of the uh plutocrats in russia um you know they they just refuse to believe that putin was uh you know consolidating all power in his own hands and i right one guy in particular just uh putin some billionaire i forget his name but just put him in jail and took all his money yeah. <laughs> it's like that was the end of that guy yeah. yep no that's 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 good i think that's a good point to to end on i and we can't wait for the donor class right to to wake up the elites to wake up to the to the danger uh i think that just has to be a battle where no. they're defeated as much uh, as, as much as we can do it, right? Yep. Good. I think so. On to our second topic: seventeenth, uh, sixteenth, seventeenth century political philosophers. <laughs> Excellent. How how would you like to um, to go about this one? So, I've been interested in. Um, you know, kind of a historical dilettante. I like uh, <laughs> his, history and and you know old, you know the 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 roots of modern political thinking. And so I, I've been making my way through uh, *Leviathan* by Thomas Hobbes over the last uh, couple of weeks, and I thought that would be an interesting sort of topic to uh, dig into. Absolutely. Did did you see the cover? Uh, the artistry on the cover. Have you seen this? Yeah, yeah. The the big guy with a sword and a what do you call those things? The the uh, staff. Right. There's a name for it. I forget the name for it as well. But did you know that Hobbes drew this? That's his artwork. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah. A true polymath. And for, for those that uh, are listening that haven't seen this image, it's. Um, it's a Leviathan, the, the sovereign, uh, composed of individual people that make up the body. <laughs> so, uh, you know, the metaphor is illustrated for us right there. Um, yeah, no, this is it's quite a quite a magnum opus, isn't it? How far have you how yeah. far have you gotten into it? Um, I've sort of skimmed around, uh, but I, you know, I've read a lot, uh, a lot of excerpts, but I'm probably even me halfway through. It's, uh, you know, it's hard going. Yeah. Yeah. It's dense. <laughs> it's written in what? 1650 something. I think it was 1651. I believe is when it was published. Um, yeah. Yeah. So it's, um, it's laden with uh, a form of English we're not so familiar with, but it's also very methodically, um, laid out right it's it's very carefully um argued with with definition after definition and he proceeds uh quite carefully and thoroughly 
through really foundational arguments about um, really everything from ontology and epistemology to uh, so every question you can think of that might relate to how we decide to govern ourselves or to 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 live together, right? Yeah, and I guess coming from a you know left wing perspective, like famously Hobbes uh, argues for this just despotic monarchy, you know, which is like just very authoritarian, um, you know, virtually all power centered in the, in the sovereign as he calls it. But, um, the interesting thing for me is just that these arguments are very formidable. You know, I don't agree with his conclusions and I don't think they're, they hold up really, but the guy is just like ruthlessly yes. logical and it's just, everything is very well articulated and, you know, it just, you could, you could see in every page that this guy is just a really formidable thinker right. and it's, it's, you know, it's, it's fun to read in that way. Absolutely. Yeah. You're like, boy, how do I get in? How do I take this apart? I, you know, yeah. you, you really got to think about no, it. No, it forces you to really understand um, your arguments and just a real quick point about the, you know, he's traditionally really viewed as um, this illiberal uh, supporter of tyranny. And, and there are some ways in which, right, like both he and Nietzsche could be seen as um, uh, forerunners of Carl Schmitt and others who could be um, seen as the theoretical foundations for fascism and, and other authoritarian regimes. But in some sense, there is an unfair understanding or a, a misunderstanding of um, what he's arguing for. So, for example, uh, although it's true that the Leviathan, right, which is the uh, the sovereign, um, is absolute in in power, that doesn't mean, however, it has to be a monarchy necessarily. It doesn't mean it could be. It literally could be our form of a, a three branch government, right? Like it could it could be any form of government. All that it means is that whatever yeah. the form is, that form of government has absolute power, whether it's a democratic republic, whether it has a parliament, whether it's just one guy, whatever it is, right? Um, and he has lots of interesting things to say that are advantages or disadvantages to different forms. But um, what is illiberal is that notion that, uh, you know, fundamentally, you can't have a peaceful, successful um government and society if you don't have the sovereign having all the power to protect both civil war and foreign invasion right um so that's that's a fundamental thing that i think uh stays with us to this day in, in some degrees and then of course Locke comes along and, and says you know slow your roll on some of that but um very interesting yeah yeah and you know the historical background is important i think in seeing why he supports that level of uh you know government power because this is written i believe during the english civil war when you know the the, the parliamentarians and the royalists were just like slugging it out over like most of a decade and you know just mass casualties and you know just a bloody struggle and you could see, you know, the the, you know, the consequences for the the peasantry and the average, you know, person just trying to get about their daily business was was terrible. Um, not as bad as some other wars, but you know, it was it was a it was a rough time, and it was because there was no, you know, there was no government that had full control over the whole. Um, um, national like area, well, you know, and, not, and when you don't have mm -hmm. that control, you end up with these just destructive battles. Well, and not only that, so it was tremendously uh, conflict ridden and violent, and just so much death. Uh, you know, he famously is known for for saying that life is. Um, 
solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short, <laughs> right? Yeah, and, the state the of state, nature. Well, in the state of uh, in the state of nature, right? Without the protection of of the Leviathan, um, and and if you look around him at the time, you of course see why he might think this. But more fundamentally than needing just someone to have uh, power, the real threat was having philosophically people become secular and 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 or in the sense that like justice or your view of the ultimate good whether it be uh you know which theology is correct or or what have you is determined by the state so that there can be no like extra legal thing to which you turn that makes you want to create conflict within the state or you know uh, there are basically he sees this history where all these lofty goals, right, um, basically turn people into murderers and, and they just kill each other over over God and their view of what is right and wrong. So he thinks that if he can define justice, not as something that even exists before government, but actually is brought into existence through law and, you know, the Constitution, it's constituted by the sovereign, right? Then the yeah. legal system is the way that you resolve all these disputes. And it's, and it's a way in which if the sovereign has all the power, there is total security, right? That's his solution in a, in a tiny little, um, you know, summary. And it makes sense why, why he yeah. would go for that, right? Yeah. Yeah. And actually, I've been reading a, uh, a book by Barbara Tuckman. Um, it's called a distant mirror and it's about 14th century France. Nice. And, um, you know, so this is the, the time of the black death mm -hmm. and, um, you know, just like the hundred years war. Right. And, uh, one, one thing that was, uh, I'm, you know, you're certainly Hobbes had this also in the back of his mind that when, you know, this uh, this book's focused mainly in France, so right across the English Channel um, from Britain. And, uh, you know, the in this period, France, the monarchy had just uh, it sort of partially collapsed. You know, the whole, like, feudal order kind of just sort of fell apart right. uh, partially. And one of the results was you had these so-called free companies, which are basically nobles or mercenaries who uh, would just get together in groups and just pillage the countryside. And they did this for years and years, yeah. just going around, you know, exacting tribute, murdering people for no reason, you know, stealing all the money. Right. Um they're just this plague on the on the face of the you know the the in France and Italy and Spain and um, even in Britain to some degree because a lot of them were English guys and when they got kicked out they went back home and started doing the same yep. thing. But the root of it was obviously that there was no governing authority that could restrain these people, and so you just had just crazy butchery you know it's it's almost hard to read at some point because it's like man being a peasant in france in the 1300s was was no picnic no picnic at all no that's true um it makes sense that he thought life was nasty brutish and short in that uh in that world right um it, it is i think super important uh to understand why hobbes is so fundamental to modernity's political thought and um its inauguration to see that like not only was he saying that you need absolute power but it has to be grounded on a certain notion of um natural equality right and yeah you know it's it's almost hilarious when you think about it now uh how his notion of equality is defined basically it means that in the state of nature everyone is equally able to kill everyone else right yeah. <laughs> and 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 this is true even if you're big and strong well 
people might conspire and, and you know, jump you in a, a group uh, or someone might be weak, but maybe smart. And so in one form or another, everyone is equally able to kill each other. And this <laughs> this is his notion of equality that grounds why he thinks uh, everyone needs to kind of create a social contract together to basically have a, a truce and say, instead of us all being afraid of each other, how about we're all just afraid of the Leviathan <laughs> and, and we all just give right. all that power and fear to, to this one um, representative, though, right, uh, who, uh, if the Leviathan fails to protect us from each other or from outsiders, then we have the right to kind of, uh, you know, peace out and, and so forth. But uh, it's, it's a big turn towards, um, you know, the social contract, right? The inauguration of a form of self-governance. And I think it's important not to forget the liberal uh, side that he inaugurates as well. Yeah, yeah. And um, that's right. Before, before we turn to uh, Locke, I just want to pull out a little bit about Hobbes's view on property. Nice. Which is, you know, characteristically, he just says is uh, rooted in the sovereign. And in fact, he says that the, the doctrine, sort of like libertarianism, you know, the view that property rights are absolute and sacrosanct, that, that each property owner is basically like a mini sovereign. He says it, um, that, that doctrine tendeth to the dissolution of a commonwealth. It's like if people begin to believe that every man has an absolute uh, propriety in his goods, such as excludeth the right of the sovereign, um, Hobbes concludes that, yes, every man has indeed a propriety that excludes the right of every other subject. Mm -hmm. And he has it only from the sovereign power without the protection whereof every other man should have equal right to the same. But if the right of the sovereign also be excluded, he cannot perform the office they have put him into, which is to defend them both from foreign armies and from the injuries of one another. And consequently, there is no longer a commonwealth. And that's just like, now we get into Locke, but it's like, yeah, just a kind of (laughs) absolutely very, you know, realistic description of what property rights actually are property right pro- people tend yes. to think of property rights as a relationship between people and objects you know, <laughs> right portions yeah. of the land right. right but what they really are is a relationship between people and particularly a, a, a person or family and the government right to say that if someone comes on my property or takes my property against the law the laws of the state i can run to the state get them to mobilize the police force right. and come here and force the other person to restore my stuff absolutely no that that's that's exactly right yeah we we forget how fundamental the state is in this uh conception and and in the theorizing of these rights to property it's really bound up with the fact that the state creates these rights and enforces these rights and is completely in charge of adjudicating it because the whole point is that the state is the one and this system is the ways in which people don't kill each other right and um, it's a function, it's part and parcel of this overall understanding of, of why government exists and how it should be um, run, right? Yeah. Um, so, uh, John Locke. Yes. So, Locke, uh, you know, he, he's somewhat contemporaneous with Hobbes, but he comes uh, a couple decades uh, later and is, is writing in a, in a tradition um, where... There's a little more distance from um, the religious wars. The 30, we're, 30 Years' War, by the way, was another massive war that had ended just before the publication of the Leviathan, right? It, uh, I think it ended in like 1648, something like that. And 8 million, 8 yeah. million people or so were killed. Um, so, so Locke has a little distance from that, and he is almost directly, sometimes explicitly directly, uh, responding to Hobbes and the Leviathan. Um, yeah, and so he's the second um, natural rights thinker in modernity, the second uh, social contract thinker, the second person who posits a state of nature, and um, and you know he writes of a state of nature that is not as terrifying as the one that Hobbes wrote of, um, right? So he has a little more distance, maybe that's why, 
but his state of nature isn't so bad essentially it's it's um a place where uh you have to be your own judge jury and executioner essentially and unlike Hobbes, that is what Locke considers to be a form of, of natural law and natural justice, right? So you see someone stealing something and you're around, you should basically kill them and take care of it, right? Um, <laughs> and so, so he thinks that, like, as the state of nature isn't so bad, it would be better if there was this system where, like, you outsource the judge-jury-executioner stuff and you could just kind of... Um, not have to do that, right? And so justice wouldn't be every individual's responsibility to carry out, but uh, you know the the system of, of law and order would be doing it for you. But otherwise, it's very similar. You know, you're you're doing your duty as um, sons and daughters of God, right? He actually, unlike Hobbes, was a legit um, Christian who, whose theology informed his writing, right? And and he thought we were stewards of our bodies and stewards of the earth, and um, and so, I, you know, that's a little brief intro before we get into the weeds too much. But um, but you can see from the from the outset that he has a little bit of a, a sunnier view of human nature than Hobbes does, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's probably oversimplification to say just like, well, you sort of look around you and say like, whatever this is, is probably about the state of nature. But <laughs> it, it does seem to be to some degree, what was going on. Yeah, it's funny, right? I mean, Rousseau would come along as a third uh, social contract theorist um, who we might talk about uh, at a different time. But he basically says that Hobbes' major fundamental mistake is that while he's correct about human beings that he sees around him and how terrible they are, he kind of imports civilized man back into the state of nature and just assumes that that's what it was like then. And really he's missed the whole point, which is that human beings were corrupted by uh, society and, and civilization. Right. So um, he seems to be the only one that sees that, <laughs> that distinction. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so Locke's big, big thing is natural rights, right? Famously, life, liberty, and property, which does not make it into the Declaration of Independence, but is in the the Declaration of the Rights of Man from the uh, French Revolution, it, the early the early part of it's it. It's true, although the Declaration of Independence, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, essentially property and the pursuit of happiness are interchangeable um, to both Locke and to the founders, uh, in, in a way. Um, right, true, but... It does seem like um, I, I believe there was a debate about mm. this when they were writing it out, yeah. and I I believe Jefferson was sort of like, well, <laughs> yeah, maybe we shouldn't make it that explicit. <laughs> no, that's true. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Um, but the way that it now thinking of it is interchangeable, uh, I would suggest is because Locke defines property a few ways, but one of the ways is that he says um, property is that which is proper to us. And so it's almost synonymous with what we have a natural right to have. Um, and, and this kind of goes together with the understanding of what human flourishing is uh, for Locke. And this is quite a divergence from the, from the ancients and then the medieval thinkers who uh, have this really kind of lofty ideal um, of human flourishing first with the ancients, uh, having something to do with uh, a kind of common good that really can only be created uh, politically, you know, as it relates to the polis of the city-state together, right? Everyone knows their public role and together uh, we can flourish, right? Um, the medievals, of course, come along and um, the Christians basically say that salvation, the city of God, is um, kind of the new way to think about the highest good, Right. And, and the common good. And um, there is this shift to Hobbes where he totally cuts the legs off of that and says, let's just try not to kill each other. <laughs> the, 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 let's, let's uh, you know, those lofty ideals are no longer uh, good. They, we just um, turn out bad. So how about we just don't kill each other and somebody just defines 
through the law what good and bad is for everyone and let's just try to be peaceful and not be invaded or kill each other you know uh Locke comes back a little bit goes the other way and says okay okay i'm gonna not quite split the difference but uh i think that human flourishing is essentially you know private property and people in their households building up wealth you know and and he does this through uh, what might be a, a somewhat commonly known um, now understanding of, of where property comes from, right? So you own your body, first of all, uh, according to Locke. And then when you mix your body and your labor with the earth, that means in some weird way that that thing you just did is an extension of your body. So now whatever you touched with your labor is also yours, just like your body is, right? Which is weird, which is yeah. weird if you think about it for more than a few seconds. <laughs> That, yeah, right. I mean, you you can also sort of see, I think, pretty obviously where this is coming from, labor mixing. So, yeah, th- this seems to be pretty clearly, you know, a way to try to, to, try to just put, put property rights sort of on a different plane, you know? The idea that, that, um, property comes from state power and so state power can reach in there and take it away whenever they want you know that's not very that's not a good uh not an appealing notion if you're a rich person who has lots of property (laughs) yes and so yeah locked uh, this labor mixing thing you know even libertarian robert nozick he uh he famously sort of mocked this this whole right. idea saying it's like if i take if i take my can of tomato juice and i dump it in the ocean <laughs> do i now own the ocean or have i just wasted my tomato juice or if you just go for a swim in the aegean it's mine <laughs> yeah it was hard work swimming um, yeah it's funny that, that the premises uh can be so insubstantial but yet they have these lasting influences. Um, but remember too that the context matters so much, right? Like rich people, of course, when society as it was at Locke's time is a little more stable, aren't so deathly afraid of becoming one of those 8 million people that just died in the last 30 years. And so they can kind of, it's like almost maslow's hierarchy of needs or something they're like okay well how about now i don't have my wealth taken from me by the state right um but the the bigger move that's been happening throughout the history of uh political philosophy though is this move from inverting the relationship between um the polis or which means city city state in ancient greece uh, in ancient greek um politics right used to be the uh, master and the oikos, which is the root word of, of economics, the household, it means household, right? The household uh, was subservient and what was considered private, which is just your household affairs, um, was really inconsequential. The common good is what mattered. Your role as a public citizen, um, your public role mattered. And in fact, the Greek word, uh, root of the word idiot means private person. Right, a person who, who <laughs> right? Well, that's the that's the root of the word uh, idiot, private. So someone who doesn't understand their public function and their role in in serving the common good. Somebody who's just concerned with their household affairs. And so the oikos or economics was subservient to politics. Well, you know, this gets completely inverted with with Locke, and suddenly, um, in a way that does flow from Hobbes, who. Uh, in one of his other modern contributions, made everything about individual agents. You know, he's literally uh, atomizing everything. And even his Leviathan is is just a bunch of individual parts, components uh, that make up the Leviathan. So um, individuals now, uh, instead of the collective matter with Hobbes. And, And Locke takes that to the next step and inverts it and says, you know, individuals and their households are the apex of what uh, politics should be about. They are, uh, the masters and the servant is the state and the politics should be that which helps these individual households flourish. That's what human flourishing is. That's what the point of it all should be. Uh, sure, we want security, but tyranny is preventing these individuals and their households from flourishing. And flourishing means 
money essentially and and that's you know here comes capitalism and there's all she wrote basically <laughs> you know from yeah. there yeah and um another another important um when it comes to lock and prop- property you know y- you can see his him being a little bit disturbed at the idea of uh you know taking what had been you know wilderness or common land yeah. and enclosing it as private property you know what 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 gets what gives someone the right to take what had been open to everyone you right. know at least theoretically and to fence it off and say you know you come on this and i'm going to violently attack you right. and uh another one of his sort of again kind of muddled moves is to say that the put out the Lockean proviso which is that uh it's okay to enclose common land and make it private property so long as there is enough and as good mm-hmm. you know similar similar quality land available for everyone else right um you know which again you could sort of see where it's like this really doesn't work you know like it (laughs) it, uh you know like that's just not the situation and anywhere except for maybe you could say the united states at the time except that you know that was due to the fact that all the indians had been more or less exterminated um and it's just not how private property is ever been established it's like people just go in and take it you know and they threaten they they or they they go in or maybe they just kill everyone that's living in a particular place and say, this is mine now. Yeah. It's, it's almost a strange, um, erasure of all the things that Hobbes rightly points to. Uh, even if you're not as cynical about human nature as Hobbes is, you can't ignore the whole history of, um, of, of that kind of violence and, um, and desire to, to take from others and, and harm them in the, in the doing of it. Right. Um, but uh, but he has, you know, what seems like a reasonable notion, which is, you know, you can eat as many apples as you need, but don't just gather a hundred of them and let them all spoil uh, if other people are hungry. And so at that point, you're thinking, yeah, OK, that's sure. Right. Yeah, good. Yeah. Share with others and so forth. Um, but then he makes a, a real problematic move, which, of course, prefigures capitalism, which is unless you can represent the hundred apples with something that doesn't basically uh, decay, right? If you have, you know, money, essentially, you can uh, accumulate as much of that as you want, because that isn't letting things spoil that other people could go and, and get from the ground and eat, you know? Um, and, and maybe if he had stuck to this impractical, but at least theoretically, perhaps more, um, you know, palatable notion that, um, you know, don't take from the shared land when someone else is hungry and you're going to let it spoil anyway. Uh, that would have been fine, except that he uh, he kind of okayed the way that you can accumulate wealth um, through money. So, yeah, that's that's another big contribution he made to, to liberalism and capitalism, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And... Um... I guess the last thing I wanted to to bring up was was just that that how uh, this this divide on the on the question of of property really has carried forward almost unaltered into the present day. Yes. Um, you know, yeah. as as we've said, like Hobbes Hobbes is certainly the superior philosopher, um, and uh in terms of the discipline of political philosophy i think is a lot more highly respected yes but Locke, i think is a lot more influential in terms of just the sort of background ideology of modern you know capitalist countries um i precisely because he tries to put property rights sort of beyond the arm of the state to some degree you know right he's not He's not a libertarian like in other sections of his his writings. You know, he's he says that like, you know, property comes like everything comes from God and 
people have right. a responsibility to take care of poor people. You know, yes. you can't just let people starve. Um, so right. he's not a total absolutist like, uh, you know, Murray Rothbard or something like that. But no, he no. does put it, you know, he, he he he's clearly trying to just sort of paper over this, like, clearly correct notion from Hobbes that what property is is a state institution. And so yes. as such, you know, it is subject to, you know, potentially unlimited meddling from the state depending on you know what needs to, right. to happen you know for for example today uh you know you like oil companies around the world have all these property rights in uh you know extractive you know to say like this claim is is mine as you know uh, Exxon Mobil, and I have the rights to pull right. the oil out of the ground and uh, refine it and ship it across the yeah. world to be set on fire. Yes, and uh, yeah. you know the critical problem facing world society is climate change. It's too much of that happening, and those right. those property rights have to be. Uh, extirpated basically confiscated yeah. and uh and deleted to, not to just right. say like we're going to give them to someone else and say these rights right. do not exist you cannot pull that oil up that coal that natural gas it's going to stay in the ground and uh sorry like yeah absolutely yeah. well because let's not forget that Locke was doing this all explicitly in service of what he called the public good. You know, he thought the common good is the reason that you set the things up this way. And he had yeah. cer certain common good of the Commonwealth. So like international corporations as being the beneficiaries of these laws would have yeah. totally been, a, you know, anathema to him. Right. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. He, he was not such a, um, he was definitely not a sort of, uh, what do they call those? the international dispute settlement courts that they built into the treaties right. nowadays where yeah. you just yeah, exactly. like override national sovereignty. If uh, you infringe on corporate profits, I think he would probably be appalled at that coming around. But uh, nevertheless, you know, his, his sort of notions of right. what sort of institution property is lends a lot of credence to people who, you know, yeah. say, oh, you know, you're not allowed to take this, even if we're literally choking life out of the biosphere with our our particular property rights. Right. right. And, 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 you know, bound up with this notion that that's what liberty and freedom truly is. Right. Yeah. Freedom. Freedom equals international corporations destroying the world through uh, their activities of climate change, creating mass inequality. And the list goes on and on of the the ways in which it actually is is um, antithetical to the to the common good and is kind of everything that would go against what you think or what one would think freedom should be for for all those uh, citizens that come together, right? It, it, it's um, it's um, it's interesting to see how uh, a philosophy founded on certain notions that are meant to help the the flourishing of individuals and households. Um, turns into something appropriated uh to those destructive ends right yeah it's uh it's, it's clearly been taken you know beyond its original sort of intended purpose to say the least uh, that's a but, good uh yeah, yeah that's a good place ahead. to stop i guess we can sure. call it quits for now tune in next well, that was week fun. Ha, 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 ha.